Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. Just pray quickly. Lord, thank you for your word. I thank you for the journey of revelation that you've taken Andy on. I pray that he shares it with us and we take it to heart and we are changed. Amen. Along the overgrown track, Annie and Clarabelle were not happy. Thomas, please! Where are we going? Don't worry. This shortcut is going somewhere. We'll be out of the woods soon, and then... Thomas had hit a rotten buffer in the undergrowth, and his wheels had come right off the track. Oh, no! I can't back up! I'm stuck! The passengers were not happy. Now they were going to be very late indeed. Thomas felt terrible. And then he saw his friend Bertie. <gasps> Hello, Thomas. What are you doing in there? <sighs> I was trying to find a shortcut, Bertie. But I've come off the rails. And now my passengers will be late. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> but maybe I can take your passengers for you. Now, it... I don't even need to say it, it doesn't take a genius, but uh, in this video, Thomas the Tank Engine represents the church that uh, Paul was writing to in Ephesus 2,000 years ago, and that red bus represents Satan, who was trying to pick up the disgruntled passengers of said church. The church that Paul is writing to was in um, Ephesus. It's the same church that was written to when he wrote Ephesians. Um, and essentially, as you read through the New Testament, you discover that this church had come off the rails. They'd gone off track. They had started becoming divisive. There was all sorts of speculations breaking out. They weren't respecting leadership in any way. And they had really gone in the wrong direction completely. Um, and everyone was unsettled in themselves. And Paul is writing to Timothy because Timothy, unsurprisingly, as the leader of the church, was feeling tempted to leave. He was feeling tempted to jump off and go to a better place. But Paul starts the letter of Timothy saying, Timothy, I urge you to stay there in Ephesus like I told you when I went to 
Macedonia. Paul's goal is to get Timothy to stay in the church in order to restore the place back to peace and good godly order and a much better place for human flourishing. Because Paul saw that although this church had got to a point where it was more or less derailed and people were jumping out, actually, with God's help, this thing can be restored. This thing can be brought back to a state of normality or even godliness where people can flourish. Now, this letter is primarily written to a church in a church setting, but churches are made up of individuals, and I believe there's brilliant principles in here for us to think about for our individual lives as well, not simply as a whole church, but also as individuals, as Christians and also as non-Christians. Because I think we can often be a bit like Thomas the Tank Engine. We can come off the rails, we can ignore the warning signs, and we can keep going when we start relying a bit too much on coffee or social media or perhaps a stronger drug that makes you feel more at peace and you're more reliant upon it now than you were before. Perhaps it's people's affirmation of you or you're finding yourself becoming angry or the victim in all situations. You're finding yourself falling out with various different people. You're getting scared. You're panic buying. These are all warning signs, but if we're not careful, we can think that this is just normality. This is just what the world is like. Hey, in London, you're just busy. You're always busy. You don't have time for people. That's just what London is. That's London life. It's all about work. Of course I don't have a Sabbath. I live in London. If we're not careful, we can slip into thinking that all of these warning signs about the fact that we're not at peace in ourselves that's just normal life. That's just who I am. That's what everyone else is like. And I think a bit like Thomas hanging off the edge of this cliff, I think God sometimes brings us to a point of realization where we can stop, reassess, and with his help, get back on track and restore ourselves to a place of peace. And I hope this morning... That is what we're going to have together, a time to pause, to reflect, and see whether God might bring us back to a place of peace, where we've been at unrest, we've been feeling chaotic, there's been warring beliefs or ideas or thoughts in our hearts, there's division in the world around us. I think this is a time where God can restore us to a place of peace. So what's the first thing that Paul encourages this church to do, and therefore I think us as individuals to do? Well, it's not wildly surprising. He urges us, he doesn't just tell us, he urges us to pray. In chapter, uh, chapter 2 is where he gets into, okay, let's, let's get down to business. Let's think about how, what we can do. And the first thing he urges is prayer. But it is interesting, because if you have a look at the passage, if you've lost it, it's uh, 1192 is the page. The first, instead of just saying pray, he uses four different words for prayer. 
Now, the second word is the generic word for prayer in the Greek. So he could have simply used that and just said, okay, it's good. You need to start by praying. But he doesn't just say that word prayer. He also uses other words, requests, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings. Requests. We start from a place of coming to God, recognizing that actually this situation I'm in, on the cliff edge or just derailed or feeling off track, I am not able to sort this out in my own strength. I am lacking as a human being. I am lacking the resources. I'm lacking the strength. I don't believe the self-help books that tell me everything and all my answers are found inside. That's rubbish. I don't believe that. I believe I am genuinely lacking. But I come towards a God who is a father who lacks nothing and is generous and eager to give. We pray. We pray to that Father. And when we pray in reverence, we come before him and recognize that he is our Father in heaven, the creator of the whole earth. Then we come to him with intercessions. That's acting like a priest, standing in the gap on behalf of other people and saying, actually, I wield some power. I can change situations in this world through prayer. And then finishing with thanksgiving. Because it's so important when we pray to recognize that we're praying from a a place of grace. We are standing in a position where whatever we lack, we possess a lot more in Christ. The riches that have been made available to us in Jesus Christ from heaven far outweigh anything that we don't currently have in our situation. And therefore, there's always space to give thanks. There's always time to give thanks. There's always something to be grateful for. But why does Paul lay out four different kinds of prayer? I was pondering this, and I'm I'm not absolutely certain, but just from reflection and thinking, this is the idea I've, I've come to. Sometimes our lack of peace isn't down to our lack of prayer. Sometimes people who don't feel peace inside, it's not always because they're not praying. But I wonder whether it's because there's an imbalance in our prayers. Now, have a look at the screen and we'll do a ridiculous survey. What kind of prayer are you? Are you an Abba prayer? It's gimme, gimme, gimme. It's always asking God for things. Asking, asking. I want this, I want this, I want this. And that is good. We are meant to come to God and ask for things. But if that's the only kind of prayer that we pray, our relationship with God will quickly become transactional rather than personal. And we will feel an unrest because we feel like we're praying to a vending machine in heaven and it's not working by the way that we're trying to pull the levers. We will feel a sense of unease or not peace even when we're praying a lot. Or are you the second type of prayer, the pointless prayer? This is the person who just wants to spend time in the Father's presence, just to bask in his will. And you're allergic to prayer points. You don't like prayer meetings where there's a schedule or a list because you just want to spend time with God. Now, that is good, and I really need to learn more of that. 
But this person lacks purpose. This person doesn't understand when Jesus says that he's praying for very specific situations. Or Paul is praying for the churches and very specific circumstances. And if all we do is pray in this way, then we will lack purpose and we will lack peace. Perhaps you are the ultimate warrior prayer. You are always interceding. You're always calling on God for every this, that, and other situation in the world. And that is good. But if that's the only kind of prayer that you're praying, then you're always at war and you're never at peace. And then finally, the knockdown ginger prayer. Do you know this game? It's a bad game. You shouldn't play it. But if you lived in the suburbs, you would creep up to someone's door. You'd knock on their door and run away and hide behind a hedge. And then you move on to the next house, knock on the door, run away before they open the door. And I'm quite like this with my prayers. I'll be praying about something and then I'll move on to the next thing. I'll move on to the next thing. And I will never know whether God answered that prayer. I will never stop and spend time discovering whether he actually opened that door or not. Because I'm on to the next and the next and the next. So I lack thanksgiving in my soul. And I lack peace. I think the first thing we can learn from Paul as he lays out these different kinds of prayers is actually just rebalance our lives as we pray. When we're praying all kinds of prayer, I think we will start to experience more peace, more stability in our lives. I think the only way we can do this is learn from one another, because different people would say that they are one or the other of those kinds of prayer, and we need to learn from one another. We need to be with one another, pray with one another. That's why life groups are so valuable in this church, because you get to spend time with people, pointless prayers. I just hate them, but I love being around them. I need to be around them. (laughs) I think that's so important for us. We need to be together, learning from one another, and we will feel more at peace as a community. The next thing, then, is the emphasis that Paul gives about prayer. What do we pray about? Paul picks up on the phrase, all people, three times in this small passage, Because I think he's trying to make a point. He says, all people, all people, all people. Pray for all people. This is for all people. And I think what it's telling us is that the tendency to make Christianity or religion or spirituality a purely selfish thing is not a new thing. It was happening 2,000 years ago where people would form their holy huddles and largely just create this thing and make this thing just about us, our religious experience, and they would forget the the fact that this is for all people. And that first plays out in our purpose in this world. Do you ever ask the question, why didn't God, when he saved me, why didn't he just airlift me out into heaven? Because it would be far more peaceful. It would be far more comfortable If every time God saves someone, he just airlifted them out of this world. I can get very tempted to pray the I'm a celebrity or I'm a Christian, get me out of here prayer. Where you feel the bugs and the creepy crawlies. You feel the effect of sin. You feel the evil in this world. The situations that aren't right, they're all over you. And you just feel like crying out, God, get me out of here. The issue is Jesus prayed the exact opposite prayer. And when it comes to this, I think his prayer is going to win. 
As we're trying to pray our way out of a situation, Jesus, in John chapter 17, prays very specifically. He says, Father, I don't pray that you take them out of this world. I pray that you send them in. And as you do, I pray that you would protect them from the evil one. It's so important when we're praying that we're recognizing we're praying in line with God's will. God wants us in this world to be peacemakers, to bring peace into various situations around us. It seems what Timothy had done is taken his hands off the controls of this church. He'd stopped directing it, and he'd largely become a passenger in the background and let all manner of other groups take over with their different ideas, speculations, and their introverted Bible studies. And Paul is trying to get Timothy to get his hands back on the wheel. I don't know, do you use a wheel if you drive a train? Buttons, levers, whatever. Back on the um, controls and saying, you need to redirect this thing. You need to get it back to its original purpose. And I think God creates Christians a bit like this. It's a bit like an F-16 fighter jet. All other jets before the F-16, apparently, when the if the driver or the pilot released the controls slightly, if they took their hands off, they'd done some maneuvers, but then when they released the controls, the plane would naturally stabilize and go back more to a comfortable flying position until he needs to redirect again. The F-16 was designed in the opposite way. It was designed to be purposefully unstable as soon as you take your hands off the controls. It would start to shake. It would start to feel uneasy, and you need to get your hands back on the controls, making it a lot more agile and a lot better at the mission that it was designed for. I think Christians are like this. When God recreates us, I think he implants an instability in us when we're not on mission, when we are not focusing on our primary purpose to bring good news to the world around us, We think, and I do, definitely, I think this will be the comfortable option. If I don't live on mission in my neighborhood, in the world around me, if I don't make it a priority to be sharing the good news of Jesus with people around me, that will make my life far more comfortable. I won't have to have difficult conversations. I won't have to have people turn me down. But actually, a deeper unease, an unsettling starts to sort of come up from within. And I just feel on edge, and I don't know why. And so often that is cured by getting back on mission. Because I think that is our primary purpose in this world. It is not to panic with the rest of the world. It is not to run away. It is to go into the difficult situations. It is to give our lives for the sake of others. That's how we're designed by God. We will feel a lack of peace if we're not primarily on mission with him. The second thing, I think the second reason he says all people, is a reminder of the power that we wield in our hands when we pray. During, I'm going to say the word, the Brexit discussions, debates over the last however many years, I heard the phrase or the idea come up quite a lot, that people were feeling disgruntled Because the one bit of power that they yield in this world or in this country is their vote. My one vote is the one bit of power that I yield to change this country, to to make this world a better place 
That's the one bit of power I yield, and for all the arguments for that, and many of them were valid, it's, it's not true. The most powerful thing that you can do to change this world is prayer. And that's not just the elite few. It's not just priests or pastors or whatever that yield that kind of power to God. He's given access to every single person. And Paul proves this in the letter of Timothy later on in chapter 5. Because he speaks about, in verse 5, the widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. Two of the same words are two of the same prayer words that Paul uses at the beginning of chapter 2. He's making the point that even the widow in this church, and in that day, widows were largely disregarded. They were forgotten about. They were people who you could easily walk past and not think about. They had no power, no worldly power. Paul's making the point here that that widow, when she gets her hands together and she prays, she can change the course of human history. She can change the Roman Empire. She can lift up leaders and bring down leaders with her prayers. That is the power that we wield when we come to God in prayer, no matter who we are. If we forget that, if we forget that we possess that kind of power as we pray for our leaders, for our nation, for society, whether that's big scale or within your workplace or your school or whatever it might be, if we forget the power of prayer, we're going to feel a lack of peace because we're going to be resorting or relying upon, I don't know, a vote, our own limited human efforts. But remember the power that you have in prayer and you will feel a greater sense of peace. Finally, on this point about all people, why remind us that this is for all people? Well, I think because of our inbuilt prejudice. This church had clearly started to alienate certain people and ignore them, push them to the side and just not think that this was relevant for them at all. The problem with praying for all people is that all people includes your enemies. It includes the people that you rub up against day in, day out, and really don't get on with. It includes the colleagues who are vying for your position or trying to get the promotion that you're going for. It includes your bosses that make your life difficult. It includes your noisy neighbors that you can think anything less of. It includes every single one of these people. And it's so important that we pray for peace with these people. Peter, the Apostle Peter, writes that if a husband is dishonoring or mistreating his wife, his own prayers will be hindered by God purposefully. Jesus says, if we resist forgiving people, if we purposefully don't forgive people who've wronged us, God will create in us a sense of unforgiveness also a sense of unease, a lack of peace in our souls until we pray for their forgiveness and we forgive them personally. There is a link between how we treat the people around us, even our enemies, and our own sense of peace and our own prayers to God. And the question is, if you're feeling a lack of peace, are you currently at war with people? Is there anyone that 
you need to be reconciled with. Because the cry for peace starts with the cry for peace between you and them. You will need to be reconciled with them in some way. Forgiveness is so important when it comes to an experience of peace. So what does a peaceful person look like? Is it someone sitting on a beach, sipping a cocktail with the nice waves of the Caribbean, lapping back and forth? I think a person of peace looks like Jesus, fast asleep in a boat in the middle of a storm. When there is a storm raging around him, it is not that Jesus is a stoic, that he just tries to cut himself off from the world. It is not that Jesus is apathetic and uncaring. It's that Jesus is so secure in himself and in his relationship with God, and he is so secure about his relationship with the world around him, that he, ha- he knows he has the capacity to bring peace into the world around him because he is so secure with God. If you look at the passage that I'm that we're looking at in 1 Timothy. It says, Pray for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. That word holiness could also mean dignity. And essentially the difference between them is godliness is this internal state of a human being and holiness or dignity is the external state of a human being. And in this passage, you note that they are both at peace. Now, can you imagine our TFL engineers? We have some in this room, I think. That Imagine if they were responsible for the train tracks going in and out of London, but they decided, let's only work on the left-hand track and give it all of our attention and really look after it in order to keep the trains going. We don't really need to worry about the other one because if we focus on this one, the trains will run fine. When my very limited lack of engineering knowledge, I imagine that's a bad idea. And over time, this one will become rusty. It will get chinks and holes in it. And eventually, no matter how much time you put into one track, the trains won't be able to run because you don't have two tracks running well. Mere religiosity focuses just on the externals. It just, it's about the godliness bit. This can be many people's experience of Christianity. It is often people's experiences of other religions. It's all about obedience. It's all about control. It's about the rules. It's about if we can control people to force them to live peacefully with one another. If we can remove people's freedoms. If we can make sure that they act in certain ways if they dress the right way, if they say the right things, whatever it might be, if they pay the right taxes, we can control people from the outside and then we will have a peaceful nation. And for a while this works, but it does nothing to the internal state of a human being. People can be boiling up inside with hatred and anger and yet on the outside give a very serene impression that they're at peace with the world. Mere religiosity, just controlling the outside, does nothing for the internal state of a human being. But then let's 
come more up to date, perhaps, with modern spirituality. Modern mere spirituality largely, and it's very popular at the moment, focuses just on the inner self. You just want to discover your inner self. You want to work on your inner peace at the cost of anything around you. People are applauded in this society for discovering who they are on the inside, no matter how many relationships that causes to break down, no matter how many children are left hurt, no matter how many marriages are broken because of this person discovering their true self on the inside, but they leave this sort of world of chaos behind them that create division in that search for inner peace. And again, for a while, if you're applauded by the right people, this might work for a while. But it is not the complete human being that Jesus describes. It is not the peaceful person that Jesus describes. Jesus is clear that a peaceful person is someone who is at peace with God. They are so internally stable that actually they are able to bring peace into the world around them. And the world around them becomes more peaceful because of their inner state. That is a complete human being. It's illustrated in how Jesus teaches us to pray. He gives this sort of analogy. He says, don't show off with your prayers. Don't make all of your prayer life just about when you turn up to a prayer meeting. That's when you pray. But go into your room on your own. Lock the door in secret where just God your Father can see you. Pray, and then he will reward you. Now, we go into that private place, our interaction, personal interaction with God, and we pray in private, and the public world changes. And the the rewards we see are our circumstances and situations around us change because of our private interaction with God. It's also picked up by Paul in Philippians and using a lot of the similar language that he writes to Timothy. Paul flips it the other way around. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, public things, external things, by in every situation, coronavirus, job loss, upheaval in societies, whatever it might be, every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Pray about all the circumstances outside of you, broken relationships, difficult people, whatever it might be, and you will experience an internal stability and peace and calm. That's the complete human being that Jesus describes. That is a peaceful person. But the question still remains, how is this then possible? And I think the answer is found in verses 3 and 4. I'll read from verse 2. Pray for kings and all those in authority, that we might live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. What truth? What specific truth? Because does he mean the entirety of this? Well, partly yes, but I think there's a more simple truth. And I think Paul is 
making it clear by the phrasing he's using. Paul, if you've ever read any of his other writings, is very particular in the way that he describes things. He's not accidental. He doesn't just throw out words. He's very purposeful. And look at the way he describes God and the words he uses. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all men and women to be saved. The word anthropos behind men um, is, is meaning for everyone, all men and women to be saved. But that description of God, our Savior, when you think of God being your Savior, and let's talk about the Trinity. So there is one God, and that one God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When you think of God, your Savior, Michael Eaton made me realize this when I was reading his commentary on this. We often think of Jesus, don't we? Jesus is our Savior. Jesus Christ is our Savior who died for us. He is our Savior. He's the one who wants us to be saved. The second person of the Trinity. But Paul is purposefully calling our minds to the fact that this is God, our Father, our Savior. At the beginning of the letter, he starts with this. Paul, my name is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. He's laying out there the Father and the Son, and he's referring to the Father as God, our Savior. And I think this is essential for us to discover the deepest sense of peace. It is knowing God not only as our Savior, but also as our Father. Let's watch this video to illustrate the point. game that they were getting ready to play was the um, Armed Forces Memorial game that this college put on. And so they were specifically playing this game and doing celebrations to give thanks to all of the soldiers out there fighting on their behalf. So all of those kids running into the tunnel past that soldier, they could refer to him as our soldier. He was a soldier on their behalf. They all knew him as that and they could be very grateful and show reverence towards him. But only one of those kids knew that guy as a a soldier and a father. And I think this is so essential for us as Christians. 
It is to remind ourselves and know, and if you're not a Christian, you can know this for the first time, that God is not just the Savior. He is your Father who is your Savior. And did you notice the noises that kid was making? That was a cry of peace. Think, before this game, he's a running back. He's going to get pummeled. His job is to grab the ball and run into very big, heavy people and constantly get hurt. His job is to keep on jumping past the enemy who's trying to take him down. He is vying for his position. He doesn't want to let his teammates down. He wants to get picked. He perhaps wants an NFL career. Who knows all the thoughts and the, uh, the debates and the questions and the worries in his mind. Do you think he played differently after this moment with his father? See, he didn't stay in the father's arms the entire time. He had a game to play. But I think he played it very differently after this interaction with his father. It starts with the cry of peace. Someone who is so at peace with God. They know God as their father and their savior, and this salvation is so unconditional. It's not based on your achievements and your abilities or however good you are at mustering up and being a peacemaker at work. No. Think about those tracks, two train tracks. If they're just on rocky ground, no train can run along that. If they're just on the grass, they're eventually going to sink into that grass and become useless. Two train tracks need to go on one sleeper, big wooden board right across the floor that holds the train tracks up, that is the foundation upon which everything can travel. That big wooden board is the wooden cross that Jesus, the Son of God, died on because it was the will of the Father and the Son and the Spirit that you would be saved and you would experience this intimate knowledge with God your Father as the foundation for your life and the foundation for your peace. It starts with the cry of peace in the presence of your Father and your Savior and then it turns into the cry for peace for the world around you, your situations, whatever that might be. So if the band come up, I think let's stand and let's just spend a couple of moments pausing in the presence of God our Father. So let's stand together and we can pause and out of this prayer this time in the Father's presence, we can then respond in worship, crying out for peace in the world around us. However you're comfortable, if you want to bow your heads, shut your eyes, whatever you want to do, or, or lift up your hands, whatever is comfortable, and we come before our Father in heaven, our Father who lacks nothing, our Father who is completely sovereign over all circumstances and has proven that time and time and time again. Our Father who not only offers us forgiveness and salvation, but wants us, wants us to experience forgiveness and salvation 
not only offers us peace, but wants us to experience peace. And not just us, but everyone that we know. Father, we come before you as your children. And we simply cry out to you, we thank you. We adore you. We love you. Please, by your spirit, trigger in us this Abba, Father cry that is the cry of peace. Lord God, it is well with our souls. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how. sermon audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.